0: Thank Josh and the team, if you would. Um, Worship is orienting for me these days. I don't know about you, but when things are stripped of uh, uh, maybe things that used to do or taken away, or maybe things that used to rely on, or things that were consistent and they're taken away from us, worship orients me to things that will never change, that will always be the same, and that I can depend on. And, uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And so I find that to be the case, whether we're in this room or I'm on a walk with the headphones in or watching something online, doesn't matter to me. So I'm, if you're online, I'm glad you're there, and, uh, and I'm really glad that you're here here with us today. Um, as we jump in, I want you to think about this question and just sort of uh, answer it a thousand different ways if you'd like, or at least a few. What are you working on these days? What are you working on and thinking about these days for yourself for your life, for the way that you're thinking about the, the days to come. For some of you, if you have, uh, you know, if you take notes on your phone, you could do that, make a little list. Or if you're at home, uh, we would obviously didn't hand out pencil and paper or whatever here in the room, but you could just start to make a list. Here's why this would be helpful for you to answer this question <clears throat> and maybe ponder it from a few different angles. Uh, you know, we're in this series, we're talking about the Israelites coming home and beginning to rebuild a bit. Um... They're working on something, and so are you. You are too. Probably working on any number of things. What is it that has your uh, imagination preoccupied? Uh, When you're thinking and planning, uh, I do a lot of that as I'm falling asleep or waking up early in the morning. Where does your mind turn to? And so, what'll happen is, is, I'll have a project going, something in the yard maybe, or something in the house, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, or you know, which order I need to do things in. And so, I'll be pondering these things. What are you thinking about when your imagination gets to working? About what's next for you? Um, you could think about it in the physical. You know, there's a pile of brush that you need to get to you need to fix that water issue in the house you need to you fill in the blank it could be that you ponder this a little more deeply and thoughtfully in terms of your own heart instead of maybe saying what are you working on assuming that some of what you're working on is you uh, you could ask it this way who are you becoming these days who are you becoming are you becoming more you fill in the blank kind gentle more angry, more anxious, as you look over the last few weeks maybe, it's probably a good time frame to ponder, what has been the posture of your heart and where are you leaning? Who are you becoming? What are you thinking about? Because here's the truth. When we ask this question, we know that it's inevitable that we become something, that, that as long as you're drawing breath, it's not static, Uh, You you can't stay the same. It'd be great if we could. If we get to a place where we're at peace or or feeling hope or whatever, if we could just sort of lock that up and bottle it and take that every morning. But we can't do that. Um, It always sort of evaporates. We have to rebuild. And you're always becoming something. You're moving toward something. More trusting, less trusting. More hopeful, more discouraged. So what's it been like for you over the last few weeks And you could even think about the whole pandemic season, last few months. So you ponder that a minute, okay? Let me give you just one quick announcement as a church while you're pondering the the deep existential nature of this question. Uh, Hey, beginning next Sunday, July 26th, a week from today, we're going to start having one service only at 9 a.m. You know, when we opened up back for in-person worship, um, we thought we would have one service for a while. We had one service scheduled for like a week. And then we needed to expand to make room for social distancing in the room. But as you look around, you see that's, you know, you guys are plenty social distanced. I mean, if you're online, we just want you to know the room is packed. I'm kidding. It's not packed. Um, So to, you know, help our staff and volunteers and other resources, we're going to have one service at nine. That service will be online. When you hop on this week to register for church, all that will be represented If you've been bringing kids to kids scene, that will happen at 9 o'clock as well, and so Diana's ready for you in that regard. So just keep that in mind. Uh, Whoever's the planner in the family, make a note that that's when church is happening because most of us here at Castle Oaks, even those of us that work here, have to ask each other on a weekly basis what time is church. Um, And so we figure if we have to ask, then we'll remember, but then we just when we have it figured out, we change it. And so I know it's, everything's changing and why that too. This will be good for us because when we do add a service, we'll keep our 9 o'clock the same. So this fall, as we need to get in routine and add a service to our schedule, then we'll just add the second one and we'll keep the 9 o'clock time. So, everybody square? Give me a thumbs up. Good? Okay, right on. Uh, one service at 9 o'clock. So now, back to the question and why this matters. The Israelites are rebuilding and they're becoming something. Uh, the structure in front of them is becoming something. And this this story of Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, these leaders, they're helping not just the physical structure and bricks be put in the right place. Of course, they're looking for hearts to be put in the right place. So this is the question you ought to ask. What are you working on these days? And if your answer is, you know, I'm trying to get through the day. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just survive. That's a great answer. I mean, honestly, you're, we're five months into a, a circumstance none of us could have ever dreamed of or even pondered. I mean, we heard about some of these things in history, but nothing like this globally. If you have made it, you know, uh, as one of my friends often says, no murder is a win, right? And so if you've made it and, and you know, you've, you've you know, kept uh, at least a shred of your sanity, then that's, that's something to be checked off, accomplished, and proud of. Maybe it's surviving the day. What are you working on? Who are you becoming? It can't be just left to chance. Well, it could, but those things left to chance usually degrade over time. So as you ask and wrestle with this question what are you becoming? And who are you becoming? Um, We're going to look at that question in view and in context, what's happening to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the exiles who have returned. And so we know a little bit about the background and the foundation of where we're headed. Babylon came, exiled most of Israel, some were left behind, and then this great leader from the overall nation of Persia that conquered Babylon, King Cyrus the Great, he sent some exiles home. In fact, it says in Ezra chapter one, this is what Cyrus king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Now you might think that Cyrus knows uh, the God of the Israelites in a deep and intimate He's the only God, personal way. That's not true at all. Cyrus was a multi-theist. He worshiped all kinds of gods, and he had temples for all kinds of gods in his kingdom. He likewise respected and worshiped the God of Israel, but of course, that's not really how it works, but God was using Cyrus to accomplish a means, to an end. And this is not the first time we read about Cyrus in Scripture. In fact, we've mentioned Jeremiah foretells this time. Of course, Haggai and Zechariah describe it as well, but it's happening then. One of the prophets names him. His name's Isaiah, and it's in Isaiah chapter 44. You ought to read the whole chapter this week. It's pretty powerful. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer and Creator. Just pause right there for a second before we go on to the next little piece. If there's anything I've been tempted to forget over the last few months, it's this, that God is both Redeemer and Creator, How could anyone forget that when they're around such amazing beauty and feel the hand of God's providence? How could a pastor slip away from those ideas and begin to lose trust or lose hope? This is what happens when circumstances are difficult. We forget that God is redeemer, which means he buys back and reuses everything. He is, of course, wooing us into an intimate relationship with him every minute of every day. He is redeeming us. He is making all things new. It's why that question of who are you becoming is so important. It's your chance to step into the flow of what God is already doing. And he's also a creator. He's making. This is what he does. He makes. This is what the Lord says, your redeemer and creator. And we skip down a few verses. He says several things before this in chapter 44. But then he finally says this. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly, what? Do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. This is what Isaiah says about Cyrus. Here's the interesting thing about this. And this is, this is incredible. This ought, to, this ought to be such a faith builder for every one of us. This was before Jerusalem needed rebuilding. This was before the temple had been destroyed. Isaiah says this 200 years before Cyrus is even born, before anybody knows his name. If you've been tempted as the chaos has just emerged in a thousand different ways to maybe forget that God is redeemer, creator, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has not, in fact, fallen asleep at the wheel or just forgot about us and gone off to shepherd some other part of his creation. If you have forgotten any of that, then Isaiah 44 ought to just gently nudge you back to the truth and the reality that God will use any political situation for his ends. He will use any political leader for his purposes, and he can Cyrus unwittingly is used by God in this powerful and unique way. And while God calls him his shepherd, I don't know that that is necessarily how Cyrus viewed himself, but it's how God used him. This ought to remind us to always believe and know and understand and lean into, even if we don't feel it, that God is redeemer and creator. This is your little weekly reminder that God is sovereign and that he can be trusted, not just with the affairs of humanity and the rising and falling of regimes. He can be trusted with your life, with your becoming, with who God is shaping you to be, with the, the details that feel like they're maybe slipping through your fingers or maybe completely falling apart in your life. God can be trusted with all of that. Who are you becoming? How is he shaping you? And so, Cyrus the Great sends them back, and when they come back, the rebuilding begins. The construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring. Now, we know a little bit about the story, and, and the story was that they came back and they begin to build the altar. Remember that? The focus on worship and how orienting worship is. And then they begin to work on The temple they hired masons they hired carpenters they secured the supplies from all over the area some stuff had to come from far away like like the big cedar poles that they would use to construct the the structure the main structure of the temple so they brought those from places like lebanon floated them down the rivers and the oceans all the way into the city and they began to reconstruct the temple of god they're building so just pause a minute maybe look at your list consider your list and ask this again, what are you working on these days? Whatever it is that you're working on, whatever it is that there's some path that you want to become, maybe it's more trusting, maybe it's working on your marriage, maybe it's working on communication, maybe it's deciding that you want to do something different at work as people are feeling anxious and, and socially deprived, whatever it is that you feel like you are moving toward. Like we said a few weeks ago, all of us were trying to take something, whatever it is, our little world, Maybe it's our little Eden, and we're still trying to make it better somehow, aren't we? Somehow it needs to be better. And this is how God created you to be. You are made in his image. You are a creator, and you're to make things better. Whenever you're engaged in that work, even if it's just inclining your heart more towards God's presence in the moment of the day or helping other people find their way, whenever you are working on something, there's always going to be something that gets in the way of it. Have you noticed this? That you no longer have an idea to move forward and there's somebody that says, you can't do that. There's somebody that says, I don't know, have you thought about? We can't afford that. We can't try that. That's been done before. Always somebody, something in opposition. And so when the Israelites are setting about their work, there's opposition that shows up over and over and over again. Some this week, some next week. Here's the first bit of opposition that they overcome. It says in Ezra chapter 3 that despite their, what? Their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation. This is the very beginning of their work. Remember they did the altar, and now they're going to do the foundation of the temple. And as they begin to work, they have rising up within them a feeling of, of fear, of anxiety. How many of you struggle with fear or anxiety in one shape, one form, or another? You can imagine that the Israelites, they come down from Persia, they come down from what used to be the great city of Babylon, now it's the empire of Persia, and they make their way into the Holy Land. Many of them have never been there before. Many have never seen Jerusalem, certainly not the ruins of the temple, some had. And they come into this culture, and there's all kinds of Hebrews around them, Jewish men and women who had lived there for decades that were not taken into exile. This was their home. They are now strangers in a strange land. Their home for most of them, even Zerubbabel, was Persia or the city of Babylon. But now they come in among these strangers, and they think the same thing when you drive into a small town, whether it's Colorado or Alabama. You aren't from around here, are you? We can tell by the way you talk. We can tell by the fact that you drive that or have that bumper sticker. You aren't from around here. And fear began to rise up. What will they think? What will they do? This this Hebrew word for fear in the original language is often translated idle. And think about that for just a moment. Uh, you know, the old worship of idols this idea that you would take something and put it above God and say we bow to that it's the same word it's a great word this is what happens with fear instead of allowing God to control our thinking or our behavior fear creeps in and we raise it as an idol and we bow and worship that and we don't really think we're worshiping fear but it controls our heart it controls our behavior it controls our choices And this is what they overcame. Now, they have a history as a people of bowing to fear over and over and over again. This obstacle is still there when they come to Jerusalem. But despite their fear of the peoples around them, they began to work. So the question you ought to ask when you think about this opposition in your own life is this. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? It's an important question. And it's one that you ought to wrestle with a bit. If some things don't readily come to mind for you, all that means is you haven't spent time reflecting on it, because everybody's afraid of something. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? And here's why it's important to ponder it and and just give it some reflection. Naming a fear, counterintuitively, does not make it grow. When we name our fears, they actually shrink. Courage doesn't mean that you move forward without fear. That's not what courage is. Courage is when you see fear and move forward in spite of it. That's what courage is. Naive and foolish is when you have no fear. Come on, you've been around long enough to know there's a few things to be afraid of. When Don and I were hiking and we were, I don't know, two or three feet from a little rattlesnake, I knew enough. I'd read enough stories to know. It would be naive and foolish to keep walking. So we took the long way around. I think we made it to Kansas before we came back to the trail. Naive and foolish says, I'm not afraid. What are you afraid of? Because if you can't name it, then it controls you. If you can't name it, then it operates beneath the surface and then you have no idea why you do the things you do. The Israelites, they knew that this fear could keep them from building, understood it, acknowledged it, and moved forward in spite of it. So you ask these two questions. What are you afraid of and how does it affect your behavior? In other words, there's gonna be a choice that you make or a path that you pick because of your fear. Maybe you're afraid of what people think. And maybe the opinions of others shape the path that you take. Why are you afraid of it? How does it affect your behavior? Maybe you're afraid of the future. Insecurity sneaks in and you wonder about God's sovereignty. You wonder about his provision and his care for your life. That's understandable. Name it. And then what does it do to your behavior? Oh, I'm, I'm on my account sites all the time. I'm moving money around. I'm trying to figure out how I can build my own security because my security is in what? Oh, the amounts that you have saved? Ah, how does it drive or affect your behavior? If you can move into these questions with thoughtfulness, then that first question of who am I becoming becomes much more open. The paths that are available to you are not available to the person that is ruled or driven or even controlled by fear. We have two boys, Don and I, you know, our two young men. They're they're young adults now, 24 and 26, almost 27. When they were little, when they were born, this idea of their their safety and their well-being just, just gripped me, different than any other fear had ever gripped me. This is part of having kids, I think. And you don't even have to have kids to know this fear. You can experience that through nieces or nephews or what have you. But, you know, when they were little, they didn't move. I set them down and they stayed there. I left the room and they, and they, were, they were They were right there. And then they started crawling and I thought, now I've got to follow them everywhere. I mean, who, who knows where they're going to go? And they started walking faster and all of a sudden it's out of my control. It wasn't very long at all before it's completely out of my control. Their well-being I can tell you how many times God has dealt with me regarding my trust in him because of the well-being or the safety or the security of my boys. How many times God has whispered to me, not audibly, but as real as if he were in the room, do you trust me with your boys? And how many times I've honestly said back to God, well, no, not really. I don't. I saw what happened to this other family. I saw what happened to this young man. And God says, Well, we have some work to do, don't we? I'm around pastors a lot these days, pastors who are trying to lead their churches through a global pandemic. And they're all trying to figure out do we have church? Do we have in person? What do we do with this mask rule? If we have mass, some people are going to come. If we don't have mass, some people aren't going to come. And how do we even take an offering when people aren't present? I mean, can I go by their house? Can I knock on their door? I mean, how does this even work? And the fear that is taking up residence in the hearts and lives of many pastors, trying to figure out what's going to be on the other end of this? Are we even going to have a church? And those of us who are given normally to trust and believing that God is sovereign and he's in control, when it hits us personally with our kids or with our jobs or with our churches or with, you fill in the blank, the things that cause you to fear, we begin to ask the question, do we really trust who God is, who he is in our lives? And where is that trust likely to just evaporate like a mist? Because when the trust Goes away. When fear begins to take center stage, what do we do? No, we control, we grab, we orchestrate, we manipulate, we trust in our own ability. And when we do that, God always seems more distant because we've moved away. So we are afraid of. And how does it affect your behavior? It's important important to wrestle with, especially this week as you're asking the question, who am I becoming? More anxious or less? More trusting of God, less trusting of him. Who am I becoming? So then the foundation is laid, and as they begin to do this building, this building and structure comes into view, here's what happens. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets... And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. So get the picture, okay? The altar's done. They'd spent months worshiping. Now the foundation is laid. And the foundation is probably laid on the same foundation that held this temple of Solomon. You probably use the same... Line of stone, the same blocks on top of the same blocks and began to rebuild and clean up the site. Now the foundation is laid and they have a ceremony and a celebration. They all stop. And this is good to do. It's important to do. When you accomplish something, it's important to stop and say, look how far we've made it. It's what you ought to do just so many months into this strange and weird season. Just stop and say, Lord, you've got me this far. We've made it this far. Our bills are paid we're all at least somewhat nice and kind and gentle with one another. This is how far we've made it. They celebrate and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and they all declare together. And this is what they say. It says there in Ezra, he is good and God's love towards Israel endures, how long? Forever, that's what they say. We believe that he is long suffering and that he is sovereign and that he will never leave us. Now, Ezra said, all the people gave a great shout of praise. That's not exactly true. In fact, here's what happened. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, now if, if you're listening or watching online, you're older. I'm not talking about you, okay? This is just scripture. I'm just reading the Bible, okay? But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the what? The former temple. What did they do? They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. Now, you you might be tempted to think that those were surely tears of joy and, and just celebration. You've cried tears of joy before. You've been moved to emotion. That's not what this means. The word wept here has a very specific Hebrew meaning that means to mourn or lament. These old priests and these old Levites, they looked at the rubble around them and they saw standing in the middle of rubble, this altar that had been restructured and rebuilt. Then they saw this foundation that had been built before and they remembered the temple of Solomon. Solomon. And they thought about his temple and its, its grandeur and its majesty. And they looked at what was and they thought, oh, this, this is so sad. You've done this before, haven't you? You've thought about the past and you've thought, this is so sad. I can't believe we're dealing with this now. This is, this is awful. There's an interesting set of psychology terms that are built around this exact experience in Ezra 3 this set of psychology ideas, it's called memory bias. You've heard of memory bias? Anybody heard of it? Memory bias uh, basically describes a number of ways in which you can remember what happened, but the way you remember it isn't the way it happened. In fact, psychologists tell us there are about 50 different ways for our memories to get it wrong. Memory bias. 50 ways that they've named. I'm sure there's more. And you've experienced this in your own life. You've been around family sometime. And you decided to tell a funny story at dinner. And you're around some of the family that was there when this thing happened. And you tell the story. And about halfway through, somebody says, that was present, when that thing happened, they say, what do they say? That's not how it happened. And you say, I was there. And they say, so was I. And I remember it. And you begin to tell these two, it's, it's like two completely different things occurred in the exact same moment. That's your memory bias. You would think that if you were there, your memory would be right and correct, don't you? 50 different ways to mess that up. In fact, there's a, a name for what happened there in Ezra chapter three. It's called rosy retrospection. I didn't make that up. Okay, this is a psychology term, rosy retrospection. We have a name for it today. You know what we call it. All right, that's what we call it, the good old days. You remember the good old days, right? Man, they were good. They were so good, the priests and Levites say. Do you remember Solomon's temple and its grandeur and its majesty and how we were so close to God and God was so pleased with us? This is rosy retrospection. Do you remember how many wives Solomon had? More than you can count. Do you remember how far he strayed away from God? Do you remember how many temples that Solomon had set up to other gods and idol worship? These priests and Levites, they remember the good old days. What do you think millennials think? when they hear you describe the good old days, if you're over 40 or 50 or 60? What do you think they think? As they're watching the world come apart at the seams and they hear you describe the good old days? You remember the good old days, right? The 60s and the 70s. What do you think happens when they watch a documentary about the civil unrest of the 60s? Or they watched the riots in L.A. that happened because of Rodney King. What do you think they think? Here's what I think they think. You've been through this before and you didn't get it right? Is that why we're living through it again? You told me all about the good old days. I see the documentaries and the footage. It doesn't feel like good old days to me. Oh, it's a rosy retrospection. Or one of the other. 49 ways to get it wrong when you remember. Can you imagine what it was like for these people that came down as exiles who have given their time and their life and their energy to rebuild and they work every day tirelessly to put the altar back in place, to rebuild the foundation of God's temple, rebuilding, rebuilding, working, tireless sweat and blood and tears, and they stand up to dedicate the foundation of the temple and the stately, thoughtful, wise sages weep and lament. You remember what God said, right? I'm good with a tent, a tent's fine with me. And here they are trying to move forward. So there's a division that arises even in the committed exiles who are trying to rebuild. So what about you and what you're trying to build? Where does the opposition come from? Does it come from your spouse who says something like, well, you'll never change? Does it come from your family who says, well, you've always been that way? They remember the past differently than you do. Maybe it comes from some coworkers or some people at work or a neighbor that says, well, you know, you can't do it that way, that, that won't work. Where does the opposition come from and how do you overcome it? So not only does this happen as as the temple's being rebuilt, many older priests, Levites, family heads, they saw the former temple, they wept aloud. When they saw the foundation, the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. You've got the picture, temple being laid. Some people weeping, some people shouting, and here's what occurs. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard, where? Far away. At this moment, some of their neighbors pay some close attention to what's going on and they see a chance to disrupt what's going on. That's next week. The question for this week is this. What are you working on these days? Who are you becoming? Who are you being shaped into? I know it's hard. So many questions about Something as simple as school starting in the fall or am I ever gonna get any alone time again or how can I trust God when it feels like some things are falling apart? Even in the middle of that crisis, you're still becoming. Let me lay down a scripture for you as we close in prayer that may give you a vision for who you can become. Maybe something you can work on over the next few days and weeks to come comes out of 1 John chapter 4, and uh, these are three verses that are worth committing to memory. doesn't matter what translation, it's powerful. And so we know and rely, don't miss, it's so rich, almost every word. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. What does this say? Say it with me. God is love. Say it one more time. God is love. Anybody that's painting a different picture of God is describing some of God's activity, or some of God's movements in time. Has God ever been angry? Of course. Does God sometimes operate as a consuming fire? Absolutely. But there is no other description in Scripture that is identified with the perfect identity of God other than love. God is love. A different picture of God means usually somebody has an agenda. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And say this with me in the yellow, in this world, we are like Jesus. So who are you becoming in your workplace, your marriage, parenting, friendships, being neighborly in this world, we are like Jesus. This is what I want. This is what I want for me, that when I interact with somebody, whether it's, somebody that knows me well like Donna or Austin or Carter, my close friends, my brothers, I want to be like Jesus. In other words, I want them to experience something of the character and the nature of Jesus in the way that I treat them, the words that come out of my mouth, in the way that we experience life together. Even if they're sideways. Even if they're having the worst day out of seven that week. Even if You fill in the blank. Whatever makes it hard for you to show the character of Christ, this is what I still want to do. I want to be like him in this world. Loving and gracious and kind and giving. Thoughtful, wise, truthful. This is who I want to become. And then he says this. There is no fear in love. Because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. In other words, when you ponder the things that you fear, it's because you believe in karma or you believe in some other uh, fabricated nature of how the world works. Perfect love drives out that fear every time. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So this week, as you seek to operate and be like Jesus in this world, my hope is that you will lean into those questions. Who are you becoming? How's your path moving forward? What steps are you taking? No grand plans, no big life goals. Come on, we're just trying to get through the day and end up just loving people the way Jesus loves us on Monday and Tuesday. How is that working for you? And what do you fear? And may you trust God with it. So let's pray this, that we would be made perfect in love. will not you bow with me? Lord, we ask in this moment that you would make us perfect in love. Lord, the details of things like this, they are worked out for the Israelites, trying to figure out which, which brick belongs on which brick, and who can help me, and who can I trust, and why are these priests wailing and mourning Don't they understand what we're trying to do? And in today's culture, it's worked out in a thousand ways that are just like that. Why is there such division over such seemingly simple ideas? When did it become so easy to toss words around like hate, harshness, unkind, division? Lord, we ask that as we live and walk and breathe and move this week, that we would remember this from 1 John 4, that we would become like Jesus in this world. And Lord, we believe thoroughly, with no naive presupposition, that that whenever we move towards you, there will be opposition. That opposition might come in the form of fear or maybe in the form of a friend or a family member. Help us to respond to that opposition with kindness and gentleness. Help us to take a step in the right direction, knowing and believing that you are with us, that you will never leave us, that you are sovereign, that the events that we're experiencing in the world today are no surprise to you. And you're just inclining your heart toward us and asking us a very simple question. Do you trust me? Lord, there are many of us in the room that feel like the circumstances of days recent have, uh, have crushed us. Has maybe uh, left us without hope or peace. But Lord, as we're about to sing, we believe that that crushing brings about the good stuff. It brings about things like a deepening trust and perseverance that can outlast. So we pray that you would do that for us and bring from us, from our lives, this new wine. Lord, help us to lean into that today and be like Jesus in this world. It's in his name that we pray, amen.